Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time is the North being let down by levelling up. Levelling up is, of course, one of the government's key aspirations and both contenders for the Tory leadership and thus the keys to 10 Downing Street have doubled down on their commitment to ensure that the north of England, the Midlands and other areas outside of London and the South East get their fair share of government goodies. But research published by the IPPR North Think Tank suggests the gap in public spending between the capital and the north has actually increased. We'll be digging into the figures with Amrin Qureshi from IPPR North and the Byline Times' very own Sam Bright, author of Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital. Before then, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharu. No one tells us what to say. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers to the Byline Times. There's no oligarch or non-dom telling us what to say. So please subscribe to the newspaper if you can. You get details about subscriptions at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you very much indeed. So let's speak first to Amrin Qureshi then from IPPR North. And Amrin, this is a fascinating bit of research. Spending from central government on the north of England, and we'll break down exactly what that means as we go, has increased, it seems to me, based on your figures, but it's increased at a slower level than it has on London and the South East. Is that about the size of it? Yeah, so um, our research has shown that public spending is actually lower in the north than in other parts of England, and it's actually grown less since 2019 than other parts of the country. But if you look at um, places like London, it's seen the highest public spending per person and the highest increase in spending throughout the levelling up agenda. So this kind of confirms something that we've been saying for a while, that the levelling up agenda has a huge gap between the rhetoric and the reality of what's happening on the ground. It still shows that there's severe underinvestment happening in the north. Lots of local authorities still continue to feel financial pressure and inequalities have just continued to widen and worsen. And when we talk about the North then, what area does that cover? So when we talk about the North, that encompasses the Northwest, um, the Northeast and Yorkshire and Humber. So pretty much all of Northern England then, yeah? A yeah, line basically. Above, above the River Trent pretty much, yeah. Yeah. And do you have any figures, by the way? You may not, it's fair enough. Do you have any figures for the Midlands? Um, so our analysis looks at... Um, uh, it's regional analysis, but our, um, we've focused on the inequalities that uh, we're seeing in the north in particular. So um, it's pretty stark in the sense that uh, when we look at spending, it's lower than England's wide average. So in the north, it's £16,000, pounds per person. Whereas across England, it's £16,309 pence per person. So that's 17% versus 20%. So it's clearly showing that um, any attempts to reduce regional divides haven't really worked. And um, three years ago this week, Boris Johnson, when he was elected, he stood on the steps of Downing Street and promised to level up the country. Um, and public spending has increased across England, which was a necessity. Uh, but we're still seeing severe underinvestment in the north. Um 
uh, we're still seeing inequalities. And a lot of that is to do with a lot of power and wealth that's being hoarded in places like London and, and the greater southeast. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, some of the details of your research here. The, the lowest per person public spending in England was in Yorkshire and Humber, just uh, 15 and a half grand per person. And the lowest percentage increase was in the northeast of England, which saw a 16% increase. So, again, you're covering a pretty broad geographical area, but within this group of conurbations that we call the north it isn't let's say manchester in particular that's that's faring badly leeds let's say and hull are faring pretty badly newcastle and sunderland uh, are faring pretty badly as well and these are kind of flagship blue wall areas where the conservatives have successfully turned old Labour voting constituencies, in many cases, into Conservative voting constituencies. Uh, yes, definitely. Um, yeah, the the picture across the North is not, um, you can't compare one the North as like one um, homogenous blob. Um, there's definitely pockets of deprivation um, in, in parts of um, North East. There's other parts of um, the North that are doing particularly well. And yeah, there's a lot of people in the North that voted um, for the government three years ago in the hopes that their areas would get uh, leveled up. And clearly that's not happened. And we have tracked a lot of the promises that have been made under the leveling up agenda in the past few years. And we've seen that um, a lot of the promises have been uh, watered down or they have been broken. Um, so we know that um, we're going to have a, a new prime minister in the next few weeks. And it's really important that leveling up is um, at the top of their um, agenda in particular, because um, it's really important for people living in the north to make sure that they feel like um, opportunities can be unlocked for them. And um, it's really important for the Prime Minister to make sure that they can future-proof the economy in the North, especially if they hope to serve longer um, than their recent predecessors. Yeah, and uh, when we talk about public spending, is this money given to local councils or have, have you got a broader measure of public spending than that? So public spending is basically housing, policing, schools and other local government services. So what we have seen is that... Um, um, that a lot of local authorities in the north are still dealing with severe underinvestment. Um, and we know that um, a lot of local authorities in the north continue to feel the impacts of austerity, um, you know, nearly 11 years on. Um, and that that issue still hasn't really been fixed. And what we really need to see is ambitious investment in uh, local authorities in the north to make sure that they can provide for communities um, in the north. Yeah. Uh, one other important qualification to observe around the research is that obviously this starts at a time of COVID 2019 uh, and you've done calculations factoring in COVID support and also without COVID support, as it were. So you've both added in and removed the levels of COVID support. Does that make any difference to the kind of gaps that we're talking about? Yeah, so even with uh, whether it's with COVID support or without COVID support, we're still seeing um, a, a lot of stark underinvestment in the North. And um, what COVID really did expose was that the inequalities that people uh, face in the North actually just widened and worsened. Uh, they were just um, more exposed um, and they were made more vulnerable as a result of COVID. So even despite a lot of the COVID support um, that was provided and a lot of um, investment, a lot of support given on health, um, it actually did didn't make um, much of a difference. We still continue to see um, 
that a lot of a lot of parts of the north um haven't really been leveled up in fact they've been leveled down in many ways yeah i, I think the figure started 2019 and they go to 2021 which is the last year for which data is available i'm just looking at your research here showing that if you take out covid the increase in the north of england per person between 2019 and 2021 was just 2% the increase in london of public spending per person was 8%. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a staggering increase. I want to bring in Sam Bright here because Sam's brilliant recent book, Fortress London, addresses many of these issues. And I suppose this, Sam, puts a lot of meat on the bones, uh, underlining, I, su- I suppose, what you found for your book, that for all the rhetoric, the North and virtually every other area outside of London and the southeast within the UK – has historically fallen behind, and this gap continues to grow despite the slogans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very much, it very much chimes with what we've seen in um, recent years and recent decades. I think one of, one of the great conundrums here is the fact that the government had promised to sort of rewrite the rule book. Um, there's basically a treasury rule book that that um, governs where the the government should spend its money, particularly where infrastructure is concerned. Um, and that's been orientated towards London for many years because you can get more bang for your buck in the capital because more people are using your services and you're, you're generating higher productivity gains in, in London than elsewhere. And Rishi Sunak, one of the contenders in the in the leadership contest, promised a few years ago to rewrite this, this rule book. And yet, um, as this research has, has shown, um, we're still seeing you know, that base level of public spending really orientated towards towards London still. I mean, I, I'm a, I always await IPPR's um, data every year as well on um, transport spending, which consistently is, is I, th- I, I think, the latest um, stats which covered, I wouldn't say the period from 2010 to 2018, showed that uh, London had had double um, the per person uh, transport spending as the UK average um so it's going to take a hell of a lot to um turn the tide on this and um it looks like the leveling up agenda hasn't done it and um yeah it's it's certainly a major question mark in the tory leadership race whether either of the two candidates would be able to 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 turn the tide yeah well, you mentioned rishi sunak having pledged to rip up the treasury rule book i'm pretty sure that liz truss said and it was a kind of throwaway line in the debate but she said that she would rewrite the treasury rule book to ensure that the north and the midlands got a a fairer share of government cash and it's kind of one of these calculations isn't it based on if we invest i don't know 100 pounds of public money how much will that then be worth 10 years down the line if you can measure that but of course the more money that goes in to pump prime london the more private investment that is likely to attract so the momentum that london and the southeast then Mm. get from that public investment snowballs so unless you make a conscious decision to say okay we are going to invest in the north of england we are going to invest in the midlands we are going to invest in scotland or northern ireland or wales unless you make that conscious decision to reorient the economy then under the rules as they are, London is always going to be the beneficiary in any spending contest. Yeah, definitely. And I think 
the key thing to consider with Liz Truss as well is that obviously she proposes tax cuts, pretty severe tax cuts. So what's that going to mean in terms of the overall picture of public spending and investment? You know, regardless if um, the North gets a better balance of public spending, is that public spending overall going to be, uh, you know, it probably won't be reduced, but is it going to remain stagnant? across the country um, that's probably that's probably going to be the case and it, you know this is a major this is a major economic dilemma for for the government and the country in the fact that we have an overall productivity problem so the country as a whole is not as productive as as our european and international counterparts and the best way to grow productivity is to invest in the place that has the highest productivity currently that could um, you know really pull ahead um, and you know, increase overall productivity in the country, and that's inner London. The problem is we've also got um, great productivity inequalities between uh, London and, and elsewhere. And so, if you if you overinvest in London, you just you're just exacerbating those inequalities. And so, the question is, well, what do we do? Do we invest then in Manchester and Leeds and Newcastle, which are basically the rung down from from London in terms of the areas that would be able to increase their productivity by the most if we invested in them but then that creates that creates gaps um, in other ways between those um, bigger cities of the north and the small post-industrial towns like you say many of which are in the so-called red wall that voted for the conservatives at the last election because they felt marginalized um, and so the 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 largest amount of public investment that would probably produce the the fewest overall productivity gains would be those those smaller towns um, in the north and, and the midlands and, and the rural seaside um, towns, and so the government's got to got to really balance those two things, those two competing forces, wanting to increase overall productivity, but also plug this massive productivity gap that we have between um, between cities and particularly London and elsewhere. Yeah, well, I think that point is really significant, though, Sam, because it's one thing, isn't it, to say I don't know, move Channel Four to Leeds, for example. But that doesn't necessarily do very much for Wakefield or mm. if the government encourages investment in Manchester, that isn't particularly helpful to Oldham. In fact, it may be detrimental to Oldham because you end up sucking in skilled workers from the less affluent suburban towns into the centre and creating relatively wealthy central cities but leaving the traditional smaller towns to to just wither and die i mean i think you you'd think of every urban area in england and that's potentially a problem if you develop birmingham and you know birmingham at the moment we're waiting the commonwealth games where i'm talking from a pretty thriving city but you don't have to go very far to dudley to tipton and see areas of significant decline. You know, that balance is very difficult, in fairness, for any government to mm. achieve. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we really need to, to deal with is the connecti connectivity problem between um, those smaller towns, those peripheral places around cities, and um, you know the the dominant urban centres because at the minute we've got we've got a I mean we've sp we've spoken many times actually I think Adrian um, about transport and how poor public transport is in this country and I think fixing that problem would allow for 
a greater transfer of, of human and material capital between the urban centres and, and smaller towns that would hopefully help to lift all boats. And I, I think there's, a, there's, another, there's another big factor here in that uh, we see a, a brain drain every year from, from the north and particularly from, from smaller towns um, to urban centres and in particular down to London you know, people flock in their masses, you know, as I've done down to the, the capital after graduating. And we need to create a, a system in which people stay closer to home. So those high productivity workers, the sort of people who will go to work um, for law firms and in professional services, remain close to home. And I think even if that means people moving um, to urban centres that are closer to them, um, even if they do move out of um, you know their small town home, I think that's that's a benefit compared to the current state of affairs, which is you know the the mass exodus of thousands of graduates every year down to London, which creates a, a massive problem for the for the capital in itself, in that it really um, puts puts the booster rockets um, behind rental prices, as we've seen over the past couple of years. The London housing market is is on fire. Um, and it was, you know, it was already a furnace to begin with. So um, I think, you know, the, that sort of change, stopping the brain drain would would help London to certain, a certain extent as well, um, as well as the rest of the country. Uh, Amrin, does IPPR North have any solutions to this or is it simply about encouraging government to honour its pledges and at least equalise, if not unbalanced spending the other way towards the north in favour of the north. Yeah, and I just want to touch on a few things that that have been said. So, you know, in terms of um like our economic system and I think it's important to to note that um you know, there is a lot of power and wealth that is currently being hoarded in London and you know, in, when we're talking about European comparisons, our analysis has shown that for every pound that is paid in tax across the country, 96 pence is going to Whitehall. But if you compare us to, for example, a country like Germany, uh, for every pound or the equivalent that's paid in tax, 65 pence is only going to their central government. So it's really important to note that the way our economy is designed, it's a result of a set of decisions that were made about what our society's priorities are and our resources. But just as the no, way... I'm, I'm being, sorry, just so I understand that then. So in the UK, it's like, you're saying 96 96- of every pound in in all taxation goes to Whitehall and 65 percent 65 pence is the equivalent figure in Germany yeah so that suggests that in Germany there is much greater devolution of spending essentially the money that you pay in all kinds of taxes is much more likely to be spent in Germany through some kind of local democracy compared to the UK Exactly. That's exactly the point that we make at IPPR North, that we need better, we need deeper devolution, we need broader devolution. And that essentially means taking power out of Whitehall and placing it in town halls across regions like the North, um, making sure that regional leaders have um, power, leverage and also the resources to make sure that they can invest in their communities. And we were talking about connectivity before and um Let's take, for example, Bradford. That's a, that's a city in, in Yorkshire and it's surrounded by really poor transport networks. But if better investment was done, 
in places across Yorkshire, then then young people living in Bradford could easily commute and get jobs across the north. They wouldn't feel like they have to move to places like London. Um, it would create better connectivity amongst towns and cities um, to make sure that there's investment happening across all of the north rather than just certain pockets and will just unlock the economy. So, you know, we need better devolution. We need to make sure that Whitehall and central government let go of power and resources, but we also need to make sure that they keep their promises on transport investment in the north and actually be more ambitious about it as well. Uh, Sam, it's not as though the government has, you know, completely ignored the interests of the north, has it? I know that, for example, in Wolverhampton, there's going to be a relocation of the department for levelling up housing and communities. There's been talk of outsourcing government offices to Darlington uh, in the northeast of England. So at some level, government has taken practical steps to boost the north and the midlands and you know nothing says that in a way more than actually physically moving government buildings to those areas yeah i think unfortunately these um things are quite prosaic they're quite symbolic in in some ways i mean they're not the you know they're creating different bases i mean i think the the um department of uh, the levelling up department moving to Wolverhampton. That's the first headquarters outside of London. But the Treasury in, in the northeast is essentially a second base and the Treasury will remain um, you know, deeply entrenched in, in Whitehall for as long as political power remains there. I mean, it's another thing that I've I've mentioned to you in the past, Adrian. I, you know, one of my more radical suggestions, um, if slightly unachievable, would be to move Parliament out of London because that's the only way that we're going to get government departments, um, you know, moving to different parts of of the country. Um, aside from, uh, as Amrine says, you know, some some actual genuine devolution to to powerful regional institutions. Yeah, and although so- I mean, these can be a catalyst, can't they? I think in Darlington, for example, there are about uh, 130 Treasury staff working there at the moment. The intention by 2025 is that there should be 300 Treasury staff. Now, I recognise that isn't anywhere near the the full complement of Treasury staff, and the power will still be invested in white but 300 you would hope good quality civil service jobs in darlington uh, uh, and they're on a campus a, a darlington economic campus at least will be some kind of catalyst towards other kinds of development you would hope in a town like darlington yeah i just hope that the treasury doesn't see this as the only thing that they've got to do um, that you know they'll be able to scroll this on on um, Conservative Party leaflets and then go home happy. You know it's got to be the, the symbolic has got to combine with the substantive, and it's got to say we're going to be based here because we want to create new hubs of economic power in these places. And um, you know this isn't the only thing that we're doing. We're um, you know we're improving local infrastructure. We're investing in universities. We're stopping the brain drain to the south. One of my arguments behind um, you know moving power out of out of London, I think creating pot, pots of money in Whitehall that regional administrations have to bid for on a on a yearly basis, essentially as a as a pageant, is is completely not the way that we're that we should be that we should be operating. And I agree. I think the de- the devolution settlement currently, for one, it's too it's too much of a patchwork. Um, we haven't filled in the devolved map across the country. And when we do, we'll see lots of 
um, devolved areas um, that have relatively little power um, with relatively little control um, over over a population. The final thing is just uh, to cite IPPR North again, um, um, which Amory might be able to correct me if I've got things wrong. But um, I believe that the suggestion has been that there should be um, broader devolved institutions um, modelled on the sort of German system, um, whereby um, the devolved administrations have power over a larger area, over larger populations, um, and obviously the the amount of the amount of money that is devolved to those administrations is greater than currently, and that's the, that's the worry that I have with our current uh, devolution system is that it is. It is going to the the power is going to be devolved to quite small um, regional and local governments. Yeah, did you want to comment on that, Amory? Yes, definitely. So, yeah, we we do advocate for broadening and de- uh, deepening devolutions. That actually means transferring real fiscal and policy power to subnational governance institutions across the whole country, so that all places can benefit from it, whether you live in the north or whether you live outside of London in, in other regions, um, rather than a few a, a few selected regions um, benefiting from it. And then also, it's really important that the assumption that Whitehall knows best that that kind of mindset is challenged. And we really need to try uh, finding ways to reset the central local relations so that all levels of government can work collaboratively. Let's bring in uh, Councillor Tyler. Well, yeah, I completely agree with everything that you're saying. Um, But the crux of it is how to achieve these things uh, politically, like pragmatically through legislature. Um, It's very important that academics and researchers delve into the data, like IPR North, (laughs) the things that you read. You know, it can bring you to tears because... Uh, through the course of Yorkshire Pike campaigning in Wakefield, for example, talking to hundreds and hundreds of people who have all been feeling left down. You hear terrible stories about living situations, the worries. Um, but the, the general point is, uh, yeah, I want a system similar to the Bundestag models in Germany, but how do you achieve this? Well, it has to be through interfering in the political process, like not interfering, but participating, sorry. So the Wakefield by-election a couple of months ago, a couple of weeks ago, the Yorkshire Party came fourth. Uh, and that's, the, that's the party that, you, that you're a, a member of? Uh, representative. Uh, not just a member, but an elected representative uh, in Aberthurdon District uh, Parish Council. Yeah. But the point is, I speak to Conservative MPs and Labour MPs about the nature of devolution. And they generally are supportive, especially in Yorkshire. But until it becomes more of a public, like there's a proven electoral demand for that, neither the Labour Party nor the Conservative, Conservative Party will actually embrace it. But look at Batley and Spen a year ago. Uh, Labour won that by 300 votes. The Yorkshire Party vote was 800 votes. And in the days afterwards, senior Labour figures were saying that, well, the Labour Party won this election thanks to the strategic targeting of the Yorkshire Party in uh, the Spen Valley, more conservative areas. So once you start doing these sort of things and you come up on the radar of the major parties, I think that's the mechanism to get the, the, gen- the generic politicians and the establishment, as some say, to actually get these really important reforms in, because as we all know, the UK is one of the most centralised countries in the UK. Tyler, I was going to say, in in Bristol, of course, you know, we talk about wanting to increase democratic participation and greater devolution. In Bristol, and this may be more about the the manner of the mayor that they had there, and they just voted to scrap their position of directly elected mayor. I know that where I live in the West Midlands, there is some resistance, at least, to the idea of regionalism. People in 
the UK, I would suggest, uh, tend to be quite parochial and like democracy closer to home. And they see even regional governments as being something, you know, people, and again, forgive me for using a local example to me, but people in Dudley will say, oh, I don't want to be ruled by people in Birmingham. And I think that is a particular issue in in the UK, I've got to say. I support the idea of of regional government, but I think, I think. It's a form of regional government, I think is is what you're getting, is what you're getting at. Because a lot of people, as you say, exactly in Bristol, uh, they're against the mayoral system. If I speak to people canvassing or to my own constituents for, like the GP uh, campaign that I'm running. Um, sometimes I try and talk, like engage them about the West Yorkshire mayor, uh, Tracy Brabin. There's pros and cons, but I think the idea of mayoral is pretty good as being like a, a hub for economic regeneration. But the problem is some people, and I agree with this, they're hodgepodge and the powers that they have are very limited. So if you start talking to the electorate about, oh, this is devolution, and you point to mayors, well, they'll think, well, nothing's really changed for me or mine or my family or my area. Why should I care about this devolved mayor? But then because of thinking like that, I think that can be sort of weaponized by bad political actors to then make people against the entire idea of devolution or regionalism. Uh, and obviously there's different, uh, everyone's proud of the county, but it, different counties are prouder in different ways. But fundamentally... Well, to stay there. I might get you back in a minute. Thank you for your contribution. Amory, let's talk about how sincere... Westminster is about devolving power because it seems to me that it's something that politicians at Westminster like to say but when money is divvied up amongst regions it's very often given with very tightly applied strings. Yeah so that's that's one thing that um, IPPR North has long advocated for for um, you know central government to uh, reset the relationship between local government and and themselves to make sure that you know power is taken out out of Whitehall and given to um, town halls in regions outside of London and um, you know we've done some analysis on you know lessons that we can learn from um, metro mayors across the north so we have a lot of combined uh, authorities in the north and you know um, a lot of mayors have used their soft powers and their hard powers to do um, a lot of uh, leveraging to, to, you know, um, bring investment into the areas that they're mayors of. Um, and they, they're they really good at collaborating as well. So I think it's it's important to, to note that, you know, there are a lot of um, metro mayors and, and combined authorities that are really great examples of how devolution can work and should work. But as um, Sam said earlier, devolution is patchwork and, you know, the government needs to... Um, be more ambitious in their devolution agenda to make sure that people, that all people, no matter where they live, um, can benefit from um, regional powers being unlocked and real investment being ha- uh, happening in their areas. Sam, how significant do you think is the development of regional mayors? Do you think that they can be at least part of the solution to this issue? Definitely. I think that it would be a mistake to sort of scrap this system again or to to sort of row back from it you know i think i think devolution has come a long way under the mayors and particularly sort of the flagship mayors of the west midlands and and greater manchester have shown i think the government now knows and this is i think one of the greatest incentives for the government is it it knows that some of the things that it's devolved to these administrations that they're functioning a lot better 
under their governments and frankly with the myriad of challenges that we now face economically and socially and in terms of public services the government needs to rely on these devolved administrations to deliver effectively for people and i think it's increasingly realizing that and in the leveling up white paper one of the most ambitious things that was pledged was to was to accelerate um uh, devolution to these to these administrations what i'd potentially advocate for is that once we've filled in the patchwork of um, devolved administrations under the current mayoral framework that we then think about how we can apply these mayors um, into broader regional um, structures. So perhaps to have an assembly of the North, uh, Midlands Assembly, a Southwest Assembly and a Southeast Assembly where all the mayors can combine and as, as Amreen says, can, can work collaboratively to fix problems, not just in terms of their local areas, which, you know, many of which may be quite small, but can work um, on a broader basis to fix um, big, big problems um, on a broader regional basis. And that's particularly the case when you look at transport. You know, we really need to fix the Transpennine route that, that runs from, from Newcastle all the way down through Huddersfield, my hometown, and across to Manchester and Liverpool. And that's not, just, that's not going to be fixed by the Greater Manchester Mayor, um, you know, it's going to take a collaboration between the northeast, between Yorkshire, uh, and the northwest to fix that. And I think um, once we've filled in that patchwork, we need to to then to then set our sights on something even more ambitious. Yeah, I mean, transport, as you say, is so key, isn't it? This connectivity, which. London and the South East takes for granted. I know as well, by the way, having lived in London, that not everybody who lives in London is close to a tube train or indeed a decent overground rail network. I recognise that. You know, we are characterising London in a way that some people who are listening in London and the South East may think for them is unfair. But broadly, if you live in London, you've got access to brilliant public transport. I mentioned on Byline Radio yesterday, that in the West Midlands, we had a tram network, which I think dates back to 2008, but which since 2008 has not had any significant extension. And it's just been added to by about a mile <laughs> recently from one part of Birmingham city centre to another that's it. Meanwhile, in that time, London has had the mammoth public transport injection that is Crossrail. And you talk about the Transpennine route as well. We've seen cutbacks to HS2, for example. So just underlining the fact that for all the rhetoric, spending on the North and on the Midlands is seen as less significant than it is on London and the South East. When mm. push really comes to shove, well, London has got its HS2 connection to Birmingham, or, or at least it will have as things stand, but Leeds won't get it. Parts of Northern England and therefore Scotland won't get it. You know, when these mm. tough spending decisions have to be made, it's areas outside London and the South East that year in, year out, lose out. Yeah, and I think I think this is the the key problem is sort of reality versus the reality versus the theoretical. So we know that London uh, is steadily consuming the southeast. You know, is its its population continues to grow. People flock there after graduating university, and as a result, the government very rationally thinks, well, 
you know, how do we support that amount of people? You know, we need new tube lines. We can't physically fit um, people into the current public transport system in London. This is entirely necessary to stop the economic hub of the country from simply falling over. Um, and as a result, the, you know, there's a cost benefit and we don't invest in the north. Uh, the alternative would be to say, well, um, investing in the Trans-Pennine route and making that uh, electrified and swift and you know, having regular trains on that service would incentivize one, employers to, to remain in the north or to relocate. And secondly, um, for people to more easily, more easily commute and therefore to, to remain up north rather than coming down to the capital. But the problem is that's a, that's a theory. The reality of London getting bigger and you know, people being rammed onto trains is, I think, too stark at the minute for, for people in Whitehall to, to take seriously. Um, and, and certainly that as a result, the, the, the issues of the, of the poor commuters uh, moving back and forth from, from Leeds to Manchester every day is, uh, is ignored. Yeah, although, of course, those decision makers themselves live in London, don't they? Mm. And is, is part of the problem. And uh, Peter Dukes, the, uh, one of the co-founders of Byland Times, has made this point that increasingly there are professions, including government, maybe this is traditional in terms of government, but in terms of the media, in terms of the acting profession, increasingly these powerful institutions are themselves based in London. It's very difficult, not impossible, but it's very difficult to be a professional journalist and earn a good living outside London. Very difficult to be a broadcaster unless you're one of the, you know, the anointed few who gets a job out of Media City in Salford, uh, of which I was one, by the way. That's, it's not sour grapes on my part. <laughs> Very difficult to sustain an acting career unless you live in London. Again, not impossible, but but very, very difficult. Amreen, we've got Rishi Sunak up against Liz Truss. They've both doubled down on this commitment to the levelling up agenda. What would your advice to either of them be, given that one of them is going to be our next Prime Minister? Well, um, we really want the new PM, whoever it may be, to focus on the health, wealth, opportunity and representation of our regions. And there's three ways that they can do that. Number one, we've been talking a lot about transport. So it's really important that they reverse any transport cuts, put a clear line between themselves um, uh, by um, by reversing cuts to the high speed to HS2 and the Northern Powerhouse Rail. They also need to improve the levelling up bill. So, you know, really making sure that there's accountability when it comes to delivering the bill, um, you know, making sure that the bill is legally binding and there's a real long-term commitment to reducing regional inequalities. And then also going big on opportunity and future-proofing our economy. And the most obvious way of doing that would be to potentially launch a mass home insulation programme, which would help address poor quality of Housing in the North help cut bills and support the health of our population. And these things are really crucial, um, especially well, while we're um, currently experiencing a cost of living crisis. So ultimately, we really need to make sure that they keep levelling up at the top of their agenda to really make sure that um, that they're serving um, the people that voted for this government in 2019. And, to, and especially if they intend to keep the promises that um, this government made three years ago. Yeah. One final thought, Sam. You know, you've talked about the metrics that are applied, which year in, year out, 
end up, once you've done the calculations, with, oh, let's make this investment in London because it makes more economic sense. There are other kind of metrics that you can apply, aren't there? I spoke a while ago on the podcast, and I would urge people to seek out this episode with the brilliant Professor Sir Michael Marmot talking about health inequalities and if you look at a broader spectrum if you look at a different set of figures the health inequalities between london and the southeast and many areas of the midlands and the north of england are absolutely stark and they played out in significantly shorter life expectancy for people in many parts of northern england if you start applying that metric to your calculations and say okay it's not just about how much bang for your buck in pure economic terms, but how much longer can you make people live if you improve their economic circumstances? Then you have a different kind of argument. You do. You really, you really do. You really do. I think um, another another um, metric is is education as well. I mean, London has surged ahead in terms of its education system. So, really, if you, if you take the three stages of life. Um, you know your young life and your education through to your productive years in the economy and then uh, how long you live um, there are there are huge disparities between between regions in the in this country I think the, the one of the most concerning things was that austerity obviously um, had a negative impact Marmot you know says that austerity really um, sent things into sent health inequalities into into reverse and um, despite him recommending generous public investment in in health um, in his 2010 report and then in 2019 people in the red wall voted um for the party that had implemented austerity so they they voted for the party that essentially um made them um made them sicker um and so politically it will be very interesting to see how this materializes at the next election and fundamentally there's got to be there's got to be a realization um and this 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 applies to the left this is much the left's responsibility as, as the rights um to to make sure that people are aware of the choices facing them and um what what they can expect in terms of their well-being and their their life chances if they vote for vote for the particular parties Sam, thanks very much indeed for your time. That's Sam Bright, the author of Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital. We've also heard from Amreen Qureshi. Thanks very much indeed, Amreen. Nice to speak to you. Amreen Qureshi from IPPR North, uh, detailing their latest research as well. If you head to their website, you'll see it all broken down for you. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast, or if you're listening live, Byline Radio, all funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. You can find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget as well, Fridays, Saturday night, Byline TV, available on YouTube. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Thanks very much indeed for listening. I'll see you next time. Cheers now. Bye-bye.